Good morning, New City. I am Kristen Pittman. Um, my husband and I and our girls have been at New City for about 14 years, and it is my joy and privilege to pray with you this morning. So let's do that. Father, we have lifted our voices to you because you alone are worthy. You are holy, you are good, you are mighty. And we know that we come to you this morning with empty hands, that we hold nothing of our own efforts um, that makes us worthy of you. We confess our sins. We confess our sins by negligence, by um, weakness, by failure, by outright disobedience. And we are so thankful that in your justice and your faithfulness, you forgive us when we confess to you that by the blood of Jesus, we are made right before you. And that because of him, we can boldly come before your throne in prayer to ask for grace and mercy in our time of need. And so we ask this morning for faith to trust your promises. We ask for um, comfort in our sufferings and our sorrows. We ask for healing of our hearts and our minds and our bodies. Give us strength in our hardships and our struggles. Give us courage when we face opposition. Fill us with your love and your mercy and your grace and your peace as we strive to live together as one unified body of believers. And give us your wisdom and your truth. Fill us with your kindness and your gentleness as we engage with a watching, waiting world that is desperate for the hope of your gospel. We are so grateful that because of Jesus, we um, can be confident in receiving these things when we pray according to your will. And now as Gabe comes to share with us, we pray that his words be your words to us this morning and that the thoughts and the focus of each of our hearts while we're here together this morning are honoring and pleasing to you because we love you and we long to see you glorified. We pray all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. My name is Gabe. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, but before I was a pastor, I was a soldier for a while. And in November of 2003, I found myself on an airplane headed to the Middle East with the 2nd Infantry Division. Um, I was 26-year-old captain and uh, in an infantry battalion. And so we flew initially to, to Kuwait um, and then eventually made our way north to the city of Mosul, which at the time was the third largest city in Iraq, a city roughly the size of, of Charlotte. So you can kind of get a, a picture what that, that might've looked like. It's got the Tigris River that runs right down the middle of the city, splits the city in two parts. And so my battalion of 800 men uh, was responsible for uh, basically controlling the east side of, of the city. And we were replacing um, the unit that had initially done the invasion in Iraq, the 101st Airborne Division of about 20,000 soldiers, and we were 5,000 soldiers replacing them. And so you can imagine um, things were pretty thin. Um, but it was okay because initially when we arrived, things were pretty peaceful, actually. 
I actually, if you, if you can believe it or not, I rode into Iraq uh, with, in a Humvee with no doors, no armor, no anything, really expecting little resistance after the invasion. And, and for a while, that was the way it was. Um, and we were lulled into a sense of, of complacency where the things that I worried about most in those first few months were uh, working out at the gym and like what meal was I going to get to eat and how much sleep was I going to get, stupid things like that, um, that soldiers face um, during the boredom of wartime. And then April 2004 happened, and I don't know if you remember kind of the history of the Iraq war and what happened at that moment, but that peaceful scenario, that post-invasion scenario didn't hold, uh, and, and actually an insurgency started. And unbeknownst to us, uh, over, literally overnight, uh, about a thousand insurgents streamed into our city on buses, and when we woke up in the morning, I was a, what was called a battle captain, which was not a glamorous job, but my job was basically to be air traffic control for our 800-man infantry battalion. So we would send patrols out, we would have helicopters out, and I was kind of managing all these assets as they were moving around uh, the city. And so I was in a, a tent in the middle of a forward operating base, and we were surrounded on three sides by a densely populated area of the city. So if you can imagine kind of being in like a downtown Charlotte with high-rise buildings and things like that, that's what it was like on three sides and the Tigris River on, on one side of our little compound. And I was there with about 100 soldiers, and I was uh, at the center of the compound in a tent with a bunch of antennas coming out of it on the radios, kind of monitoring what's happening. And I was there with my cup of coffee, and it was usually a pretty boring kind of, kind of a job. And, and then in a moment, everything changed. And all of a sudden, we started to get hit with um, severe mortar fire, um, RPG fire, small arms fire, and we were, we were under attack. And it wasn't just our compound that was under attack. There was a coordinated attack across the whole city on all the American positions, and we, we weren't ready for that. It was a total surprise to us. And I remember standing in that tent as a 26-year-old uh, guy, and, you know, I had trained for this. At that point, I had been in the Army about five years um, and, and kind of thought about what it would be like if I was ever in a combat situation. But then when it, when it happened, I mean, it's still shocking. No matter how much you've prepared, it's a, it's a shocking uh, moment when you realize that uh, in the Army, we refer to it, to it as the two-way range. When you go to the range and you practice, you're shooting that way, but this time the targets are shooting back at you. Um, and so that was the scenario that, that I found myself in on that April morning in 2004. And uh, in that moment, what I want to tell you about that is it was a crisis moment in my life, in my young life, a crisis moment. And in, the, in that crisis, uh, something happened, and that's that all of a sudden reality became very clear. Have you ever had that happen to you in a crisis moment? In a crisis moment, kind of all the fluff and distraction and noise of life kind of fade into the background and you get super focused in, in that moment, whatever your crisis is in that moment. So that's what that was like for me. And some, some things became apparent to me. I realized, and this sounds really dumb, but I realized I was in a war. I had kind of forgotten that. Uh, I realized I'm a soldier in a war. And number three, I realized people are trying to kill me and I might not make it out of here alive. And those things just became my new reality. 
So there's this, there's this thing in life where when we encounter crisis, things get super clear and we realize what's really going on around us. And we realize some things probably about ourselves too. And I want to set that up as the context because I think it's something we can all relate to. Maybe we haven't all been to, to war, but we're all, we're all very experienced in crisis. You know, they say you're, you're either in a crisis you're about to move, in, move into a crisis or you're moving out of a crisis. That's just kind of life, isn't it? Um, and I think that's true in our smaller stories uh, that are happening in our individual lives. But it's also true that there's crisis happening in the larger world around us. And uh, I just read a really interesting book by one of my favorite authors. His name is a guy named Mark Sayers. Um, if you haven't read Mark Sayers, I would recommend anything he's written. He does podcasts and stuff like that too. But uh, his most recent work is called A Non-Anxious Presence. And basically in this book, he posits that we are in this cataclysmic uh, shift in human history right now. He actually says he thinks it's, it's bigger even than the industrial revolution. That because of technology, the speed at which change is happening, the speed at which information is traveling around the world means that the, the shifts in human history are happening faster than ever. And he argues that we are actually between eras as, as all of our systems, our economic systems, our political systems, our social systems and cultural systems, these are all really like anchors, right? These things that have anchored civilization and life for the last 50 or 100 years um, are, are, are literally unraveling before our eyes. I don't know if you are experiencing that or not, but I imagine if you think hard enough, you realize that's true in some way. And, and here's the, the, the other shocking thing that Sayers points out. He says, things in our world will not return to the way they were. And I deeply believe that. Things will not return the way they were. Maybe, maybe some people in this room are kind of still in a posture of, yeah, the world's on fire right now. It's crazy. The politics, the economics, what's going to happen, all these things. But you're kind of thinking in the back of your head, I kind of can't wait till we get back to the way it used to be, where I could really just understand what's, what's going on, where life was way more predictable. But I agree with Sayers that things are not going to return to the way they were. And so instead, he says that we're careening head, ahead in human history, what uh, was is gone and what will be is unknown. So we've left this, this relative stability of the last 50 years, if you think about it, especially as Americans, right? And I experienced that even in my Iraq story. I mean, we were taught that we were invincible, that no one could defeat the greatest army on the, on the face of the planet. We were taught that. We believed that as a 26-year-old going into a combat zone with an American flag on my shoulder. I believe that. But then I got in the war and I realized guys on buses coming overnight can disrupt everything. And that's the nature of, of our world, right? A guy with a laptop can disrupt major corporations around the world. We're in an unprecedented time of change. And so Sayers calls this space uh, between the era that we're leaving behind and something ahead, which we don't know what that looks like. He calls this a gray zone. Uh, and a gray zone is a place rife with uncertainty and plagued by anxiety. I'm imagining some of you here today can, can relate to that word anxiety. I know that I can. That's, that's definitely something that I struggle with. And, and it makes sense that many of us are struggling 
in this age, this gray zone space between eras, um, because there's a tension for a lot of reasons, partially because there's so much information streaming at you. You think about it, when I was a kid growing up, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have a phone in our pocket. You know, my ritual was watching my dad read the Charlotte Observer in his recliner. And if it wasn't in the Charlotte Observer, if Dan Rather wasn't talking about it on the news, we probably didn't know about it, right? But now, like, we all have the world at our fingertips, information streaming into our pockets, onto our phones, onto screens. And so here's the deal. I, I really think that we know too much for our hearts to bear. We just know too much. We're not, we're, not, we're not made and wired up as individual people to like bear the weight of all the evil in the world. And yet we feel it and hear it constantly day after day after day. And the result of it is anxiety. Secondly, our Western culture is definitively tilting away from the foundational systems of thought that are rooted in a common understanding of truth. You know, people used to disagree, right? But they, people didn't disagree about the concept of truth itself. But in postmodernism, that's not true anymore. And so even the idea of what is truth itself is up for grabs as we move toward more and more a postmodern relativism where everything's up for grabs. And so what, it, what does that mean for us as individuals? It means a lot. But one of the things it means is that uh, the big existential questions of life, like who am I? What is right? What is good? What is bad? Um, those questions used to be answered by our culture, by our civilization, by our institutions, right? That anchored us with those existential questions. But now um, it's up to individual people to discern each one of those questions for themselves. And, and here's the deal, is that the weight of such questions is just simply too much to, sh to shoulder. You're, you're not meant to have to answer those kinds of questions as an individual person. And so this world between eras uh, is a space where we're just plagued with an overwhelming sense of identity. And I, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one that, that feels that. And so there's this broader context of chaos and anxiety, but I think that makes its way into our individual stories, in our smaller stories, and I don't know how you experience that, but I'm imagining that you do in some way. And we're tempted to believe that this is a new and novel thing that we're dealing with, this gray zone space, this space where everything's being undone, where things that we relied on in the last era are kind of fading away and we're not sure what's coming and what the world's gonna look like. We think this is something the world's never seen before, but in fact, the gray zone is an ancient place. And the good news is that it's a place where God's people have walked before. And so today I wanna to take us to uh, such a place in, in the book of Isaiah. And if you're not familiar with the book of Isaiah, he's one of the major prophets. Uh, in the, he, he is living and writing in around the eighth, middle of the eighth century BC. So pretty long time ago. Um, just to, if you're not familiar with the, the Old Testament scriptures, you know, we have our, our, our books of um, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible that kind of set up uh, God's reality that tell us all the foundational truths about who God is, who we are, what's true in the world. And then tells us there's history books that then tell us the story of how God interacted with people who were trying to live out those truths. 
and namely in the nation of Israel. So God chooses this, this like nothing tribe uh, and, and sets them apart and says, this is gonna be my people and I wanna bless the whole world through this people and I'm gonna give them my truths um, and, and I'm gonna bless the world that way. But the deal with Israel is they're disobedient and forgetful. And so they don't follow the truths. And that's the story that we read in the history books of the Old Testament. And so what happens is God sends prophets, right? He sends prophets, his messengers, to, to get his people back on track. Because he's like, here's the way I want you to live. You're my chosen people. I pick you. Now go this way. And inevitably they, they go this way and they go that way. And so God sends prophets. And Isaiah is one of the prophets that he sends. And Isaiah is in an interesting time in the history of the Jewish people. Um, he's in an era where once Israel was uh, one, one nation, but eventually the nation gets split into two parts, a northern and a southern kingdom. And so Isaiah is living and working and ministering in Judah, the southern kingdom. And he's a prophet, uh, which means he's a teller of truth to a king, okay? And the king's name is Uzziah. Um, and, and we're going to talk a little bit about Uzziah and the significance of, of what that means. But um, Isaiah is this prophet. Um, he's speaking truth, getting God's people back to these foundational truths. And he does that through talking to a king. So if you would, you could stand uh, with me and we're going to read a, a little passage from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. It was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord... He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations, and the entire building was filled with smoke. And then I said, it's all over. I'm doomed for I'm a sinful man. I have filthy lips and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the king, the Lord of heaven's armies. And then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs and he touched my lips with it and said, see, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. And then I heard the Lord asking, whom should I send as a messenger to his people? Who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. There ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. So crisis is not a, a new space. Being in a gray zone space between eras is not new. Uh, we find the prophet um, Isaiah uh, at a time in his life, a particular time, and we know that it was a time of, of disruption and a, a time of a gray zone era because of verse 1. If we look at verse 1, it says, it was the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. Now, who was King Uzziah? King Uzziah was the king of Judah. He reigned for 52 years, starting when he was 16 years old. And for most of that reign, he was a really good king. And he, he listened to the prophets and he followed God's laws. And as a result, 
uh, Judah was, was pretty prosperous during that time. He was, he was a wise ruler. He invested in agriculture. He invested in the military. And so it was a time of economic prosperity. It was a time of military power and strength. It was a time of, of, of moral strength as a, as a country. Um, and so it was a time of, of great certainty and prosperity. And so then after 52 years, if you can imagine having a president or a ruler for 52 years and things are really good and really certain and really stable, and then he dies. And all of a sudden, everything that was, that was true that uh, Isaiah and the, the nation of, of Judah had counted on changes and life is upside down and he finds himself in a crisis moment. And I think we can probably identify, there's some crazy ways I think we can identify with this. 52 years, right, of national prosperity, economically, militarily, think about that. Can we relate to that? A little bit. I feel, I feel like that's kind of the America I knew when I was growing up, right? Um, certainly the one that I went into the army and, and, and fought for, that was my presupposition, that, that we're kind of the center of the universe. Um, and that things are really good, and that if I just work really hard, and if I just follow the rules, life will probably go pretty well for me. And so life was similar like that for people um, during King Uzziah's time. And so um, that's, that's kind of the backdrop uh, for what I want to speak into, because the rest of this passage is really a description of a beautiful prayer. Remember in our series on prayer, uh, we've learned that Prayer is actually a conversation with God. It happens in a relationship with God. And that's the case for Isaiah too. And so the rest of this passage, I want you to think of it like this is a, this is a prayer. It says it's a vision. It's a particular kind of prayer, but it's a, it's a conversation between Isaiah and God. And it's a conversation that happens in the midst of great crisis um, in his life. And so just as we're going through this passage, think about it that way, because I think you can, you can probably relate to that. You're probably experiencing some form of, of crisis yourself, some sense that things are changing. And, and so we too, like Isaiah, are invited uh, to pray during crisis. And there's really, because in prayer, and this is going to be an overarching theme for us this morning, is that in prayer, we're invited to see more clearly. You remember my story of, of being in Iraq and all of a sudden when my crisis moment happened, right? The world, the noise goes away, the focus is there. I've got new glasses, I'm seeing things completely different, right? I'm seeing things really as they actually are. Um, and I think that happens in crisis. And so in prayer, we're invited by God to see correctly. And we're gonna talk about three things that I think we can see more clearly when we're in crisis. And I want this to be an encouragement to you because the world says, get out of crisis as fast as you can. Crisis, avoid that at all costs. Crisis, be terrified of that because that might just destroy you. And, and boy, if your way of life is destroyed, if all the things that are certain for you are destroyed, look out, your life is undone. But God says something really different. God says crisis is an opportunity to be molded. And so as we look at our passage, first, Verses one through four, what do we learn to see more clearly? It says, he was sitting on a lofty throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. They were calling to each other. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations and the entire building was filled with smoke. 
Now, I don't know if you've ever read the Bible this way, but the Bible is meant to be read, number one, as a story, okay? It's a cohesive story. We'll talk about that some other time. Genesis to Revelation, one story, right? But it's also uh, a picture book. It's actually meant to be read as images. And so imagery in the scriptures is incredibly powerful to understand what God's trying to convey. And so this image that we're given here, Isaiah sees a king on a throne, but it's not just any king. It's a king so powerful that the throne is higher than any throne he's ever seen before. That his robes, right, which in the old times, robes and the size of the robes and the length of the robes was a sign of how powerful you were. And so these robes are so big, they're filling the entire temple. It's like an impossible sight that he's seeing. And there's angels attending and it says they're covering their eyes. In fact, the way their bodies are constructed is that they have wings to cover their eyes and their feet. Why? Because when you go into a holy place, the glory of God is so bright, they have to cover their eyes because their job is to be in the presence of a holy God. Their feet, right? Feet in the ancient Middle Eastern cultures are, are dirty places, right? So we cover, they cover their feet. Um, remember, God says when he meets Moses, says, take off your sandals, right? Take your shoes off. This is the holy ground. So the angels cover themselves because it is a holy place. So this beautiful picture of a holy God Almost a picture of a God who's unapproachable. Because if you think of it, we don't have wings to cover places on our bodies that are unholy. Um, but, the, but the angels do. And so this unimaginable picture of God's holiness, the first thing we see in Isaiah's vision is that in prayer, we see God for who he really is. And I think that's true. When we go to prayer in God, maybe not every time, but over time, God reveals himself to us. He shows us his holiness. And as we, can, as, as we see him as he really is, right, the Bible teaches us that our response ought to be first fear. Fear. Oh my gosh, this is a holy God who could, who could destroy me. Forget this crisis. This holy God could undo me with a word. All right, moving on. The second thing we see in verses five through seven is Isaiah's response. And I love this response. He says, it's all over. He sees this holy God, encounters God on his throne. He says, I'm doomed for I'm a sinful man. And he talks about having um, filthy lips that uh, he's among a people with filthy lips. Well, what does this mean? When, God see, when Isaiah sees the holiness of God, he also sees the brokenness and sinfulness of himself. And so the second thing we see when we move in prayer, we're in crisis, we move to a place of prayer, we see God for who he is, but the invitation is also to see ourselves as we are. And I honestly think that's why sometimes we don't want to pray. It is for me, is that when we go to God in prayer and we see ourselves and we see our sin and we're confronted with it, sometimes we just don't want to deal with that. But that's the invitation. But it's not over there because God's a gracious God. And it says, there's this beautiful picture. One of the seraphim flies over and takes this burning coal off of the altar. What does he do with it? He touches Isaiah's lips and says, see, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. And so in prayer, we see ourselves as we are sinful, yes, but in the presence of a gracious God, also forgiven and assigned Third thing that we see in prayer, verse eight, 
I heard the Lord asking, whom should I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. So Isaiah meets God. He understands more about God. He understands more about himself. He himself is cleansed, but why? Why is he cleansed in this space? Is it for himself? No, it's for the sake of others. And I, I want to make a point here that that's the core of our understanding of discipleship as well, is that as we meet Jesus, right, what's our reason for wanting to know more about God? What what's, what's, should it be our real reason for wanting to be transformed and changed if we've really met God, if we've really understood our own brokenness, if we've really been touched by his grace? It's not for ourselves. It's not so that we can become puffed up believers with more knowledge or a greater sense of moral authority. It's for the sake of others. And so that's the next movement that happens in this beautiful vision is you see this conversation that God among the Trinity is having with himself. Whom should we send? Whom should we send? Well, why is he talking about sending? Well, he's sending because in prayer, the third thing we see is the world as it is, broken and blind. The world is in desperate need of truth. The world is in desperate need of a savior. And so this is what happens in Isaiah's encounter. In this mega crisis of his world, he's called and he sees God for who he is. He sees himself for who he is and he sees the world as it is. And then God sends him with a purpose into that world. And so he has this beautiful response to redemption that's not about Isaiah's personal preference, that Isaiah's posture is pure servanthood. He doesn't say, well, where are you going to send me? Or what am I going to have to sell? Or like, what's it going to cost me? Or maybe, maybe later when it's more convenient, he just, here I am, send me. And I think that happens in, in prayer as well. As we pray, as we encounter the Holy God, as he's going to touch us, he's going to forgive us. But then you know what? He's going to send us and assign us. Well, you might say, Gabe, that is a, a beautiful uh, story from the 8th century BC. That's a long time ago. What in the world does that have to do with me? What does that look like, actually? And so I'd like to fill in just with one more story, if you'll indulge me for another few minutes. I want to tell you what this has looked like at a time in my life. You see, uh, when I was 14 years old, I know this is going to be hard to believe, but I was a very awkward young man. I was a little bit overweight. I, my skin wasn't, wasn't good. Um, and I really wrestled um, with prof profoundly with anxiety and not understanding who I was. Never felt like I fit in. Um, and just, just really wrestled socially in some of those spaces. And I don't know if some of you can relate to that. Um, maybe some of, some of you students in the room today, maybe, maybe you relate to that. Just the idea that maybe sometimes it's a struggle to fit in. Sometimes you just don't know where is your place. Sometimes maybe your, your anxiety is too much for you. Um, and if, if that's you, I want to let you know, hey, I understand. I was there. And not only was I there, but sometimes that 14-year-old boy comes back and makes an appearance. Um, but I was 14 and that was kind of where I was at in life. And so we were part of a church, part of a youth group, and uh, we were going on a beach retreat. And so if, if you think about a pasty white, slightly overweight young man with bad skin, the last place that he may want to go with his peers is to the beach. Um, but yeah, that's where we were going. And so I kind of reluctantly went on this trip. And I dreaded it because I didn't know where I fit in. 
Um, I kind of was between groups and everything like that. And so we get to this retreat and the first few days, it was exactly like I thought it was going to be. Um, I really struggled. I wanted to go home, but hard to believe. No cell phones at this point. Um, so there's kind of no way out. You're kind of out there. You're stuck until you, you can't call home. You can't text. You, there's not another way out. I'm just stuck there. Well, then the last night of this retreat happens. And the theme of the retreat was Can't Buy Me Love. Um, if anybody seen that cheesy movie? Um, but that was, that was kind of the theme is Can't Buy Me Love. And the idea was really helping us to understand that we are loved as we are, um, which was something I really struggled with, with understanding at that point in my life. And the last night came and we were in a room and we watched that movie and our youth pastor, Robbie Fisher, gave a, gave a talk. And then they played this video and the video was a video of the crucifixion. And I had never seen the crucifixion depicted that way before. And I was in the very back of the room and it was dark. And as I watched the nails go through his hands, and as I heard our youth pastor talk about the good news, telling me that I was loved, telling me that Jesus himself had come and lived the life that I could never live, that he came and he loved me so much that he gave up everything, that he gave up his place as king, and that he died this horrific death. And I watched this horrific death unfold on the screen in front of me. And something happened in that moment because you see, that was a crisis in my life. It wasn't a war in Iraq, but you know what? It felt the same. It felt the same. I would put that crisis that I was in in my life socially as a 14-year-old in the same bucket as being in combat as a soldier. And in that moment, in crisis, in the back of that dark room, something happened. And all of a sudden, I felt the overwhelming power of the Holy Spirit descend on me. I don't know, those of you who have met Jesus, what that was like for you. For me, it was a very visceral experience where I felt the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, and I felt this overwhelming presence of God's love. And in that moment, I knew who I was for the first time. And all of a sudden, just like in a crisis moment, my vision got really focused and, and the, the realities of my anxiety and that I didn't fit in and that I didn't like the way that I looked, all that didn't matter in that moment. And I was just, I was just there with Jesus in that moment. And then I, I left the retreat and I came home and I wasn't the same. And the thing that happened for me after that was I started to get crazy ideas about who I was, that God began to show me that I was significant. And he didn't change me. And, you know, I still, still had the same body and I still had the same problems and my friend groups didn't change overnight. But you know what changed was the understanding of who I was deep down inside. And so in that crisis moment, going to God in prayer, I all of a sudden saw God for who he was, a savior who died for me, who gave up everything for me, who loved me. I saw myself as I truly was sinful, broken, and, and without God, not on a good path. But because of what he had done for me, something new, a new person, a new creation, a person of significance and worth, and I saw the world for what it was 
trying to measure up to all the people in junior high school, not worth it. The chaos and craziness of that world, not worth it. I don't know what your story of crisis is right now, but I imagine that you have one. And, and maybe for you, that's not the mega crisis that's happening in our world. Maybe for you, it's something really specific, that there's a really specific crisis that you're facing and maybe you really identify with what we talked about in terms of anxiety and the weight of the world right now. And if that's you, I just wanna encourage you that you're not alone, that because of what Jesus has done, that he invites you to come to his throne and that you don't need a seminary degree, you don't need to be a pastor, you don't need special oil, you don't need to be in a church. You can be on your porch and you can go to him and you can have out of your crisis moment a holy encounter with a living God who loves you more than you can understand and who calls you to a life of significance and of purpose. And if that's you, if any of that resonates with you today, I wanna invite you to not leave this room. Don't leave this room without talking to somebody about that because today could be the day. Today could be the day that your crisis births a new vision for your life. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you that you are our creator. Lord, I thank you for your holiness, that you are above all of our cultures. Lord, I praise you that you are truth. Lord, I thank you that you've entered into our story and that you invite us to come to you and that you promise that if we come to you, Lord, you'll be there and you'll reveal yourself to us, that you'll show us who we are, that you'll show us what's really happening in the world and that you'll call us to a life of significance and purpose. So Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room, those who are struggling with anxieties of many kinds, those who are in crisis moments right now, Lord, I pray you would meet them in that space, that you would transform the crisis into an opportunity to meet you, to understand who they really are. And Lord, we just thank you um, for the gift of life. In Jesus' name, amen.
for being here this morning. We hope you'll respond to what you've heard and what we've sang. And there's a couple different ways you can do that. One is to connect with someone, someone around you, or even stop at the connection point on your way out today. Another way is by prayer. Um, feel free to stay in your seat and pray if you want to. We're also going to have people up here today with yellow lanyards on. They're here to pray with you and pray for you and to share with. And so please do that. Or you can go online and share a prayer request there as well. Or you can give. 
God has given us so much. And so we can respond by giving back to him. And you can do that in a couple ways here at New City. There's boxes in each of the lobbies, or you can go online at newcity.us give. Would you extend your hands to receive a blessing as you go out into your life this week? I don't know where you are in your life, whether you're in a crisis right now, whether maybe you're about to head into one, whether you're just coming out of one, wherever you are, receive this blessing. May, may the love, the beautiful and powerful love of the Father be yours. May the grace of the Son that washes you and makes you new, new be yours. And may the fellowship of the Holy Spirit that ensures you don't have to walk alone be yours as well as you go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen.